Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Loose Ends, a Sing Family Tragedy, has been created specifically for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There is graphic depiction of violence and murder, frank portrayal of sexuality, and at times excessive language. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. This is episode 8, IPH. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you for listening. Welcome to episode 8, IPH, Intimate Partner Homicide. Criminologist Shannon has been listening to the podcast. We started corresponding and then started talking. I was interested in what she had to say. She has strong opinions regarding Max Seeker. Shannon has a degree in criminology with a major in policing and a minor in forensic science. She spent time during her undergraduate degree in laboratories gaining first-hand forensic experience with blood pattern analysis, fingerprint analysis, forensic DNA analysis, crime scene analysis, etc. She is currently researching criminology at a master's level with a key focus on domestic violence and homicide. She is studying toward becoming an academic. Shannon has been working with offenders for some time now within Queensland Corrective Services. She has served as a parole officer and a plainclothes surveillance officer. Shannon currently works in a correctional facility and is regularly exposed to offenders with a range of complexities and offending backgrounds. Shannon, how are you? Well, thanks, Graham, and yourself? I'm well, thanks. Good to talk to you again. And thank you for having me. I'm honoured to be here. Looking forward to what you have to tell us today, Shannon, all about domestic violence with your background in criminology and um, forensic science and policing. Perhaps we can start with the Duluth Wheel. I hadn't heard of that before you mentioned it to me in one of our uh, discussions, so I'm interested in hearing what you uh, can tell us about it. Yeah, for sure, Graham. So probably the best spot to start would just be with a formal definition of domestic violence. I think there's still some inconsistencies around what domestic violence actually is. Okay, Graham. So the Australian Bureau of Statistics defines intimate partner homicide as being a homicide in which the victim and the offender have a current or former intimate relationship. And this includes same-sex and extramarital relationships. So I'll be talking a lot about coercive control in this episode as well. And that's defined as the perpetrator's ability to impose on the aggrieved things that the aggrieved does not desire or to remove or decrease desired things. And that's a definition by Hamburger and Larson et al. in 2017. So just before we move into the Duluth model or the parent control wheel, I think it's just important to sort of give the framework of those definitions and what we've been working around. So used in professional practice, the Duluth model, or more commonly known as the parent control wheel, is a round diagram comprised of eight factors 
and these are used to identify aspects of domestic violence. So for the purpose of today, I will be using female pronouns when I talk about a victim. That's to highlight the overrepresentation of female victims and just to acknowledge Neil Masing in this case. First segment of the parent control wheel or the Duluth model is coercion and threats. So this might look like threats of suicide, making a victim drop formal charges or threatening to hurt the victim or someone she loves. Uh, The next segment is intimidation. So that can look like destroying property, using looks, actions or gestures to instill fear, abuse of pets and causing fear through threats. Those threats can also look like stalking. Next segment is emotional abuse. So that might look like putting her down, making her feel bad and publicly humiliating her. Emotional abuse can also make her feel crazy or or sort of publicly proclaim that the victim is crazy and also quote unquote playing mind games. Next section is isolation. So this one's controlling what she does, who she sees, and controlling relationships with family and friends. So essentially in this aspect, perpetrator is trying to isolate his victim from social contacts. Uh, The next segment is minimizing, denying, and blaming. And this segment highlights how a perpetrator might make light of the abuse and shift responsibility for those abusive behaviors onto the victim. So it's sort of a, look what you made me do. Um, You did A, which made me do B, et cetera, et cetera. Next section is using children. Fairly self-explanatory there, but essentially using children and access to them as a means to force compliance. So if you don't do this, you won't have access to our children. Last two are economic abuse. That obviously is all to do with finances, prevents her from getting or keeping a job and doesn't allow her access to an income. So it's essentially encouraging the victim to be reliant on the perpetrator for things like an allowance, which is a term that's often used in domestically violent relationships. And lastly is male privilege. So treating her like a servant and routinely defining and reiterating male and female roles within a relationship. Okay. I would ascertain that many of these feature prominently in this case. So if we go through and analyze these one by one in a checklist type format, firstly, you have coercion and threats. So if we look at that in relation to this case, we know that Max reported to Neilma that he had a brain tumor in the months preceding the murders. I maintain that this was used to coercively control Neilma's autonomy in the situation and basically to sway her decision to leave the relationship. We know that she was building up to a separation at that time or was thinking about separating from Max. And I believe that the brain tumor facade was used to elicit sympathy and essentially guilt trip Neilma into a reconciliation. Right. So I would argue that Max in this situation preyed upon Neilma's personality. I think she's fairly well regarded as being a very loving sort of person. And I think that that factor of her personality, that feature of her personality uh, has been used to Max's advantage in this situation. Mm. Another facet that interested me was the threat of suicide. I know that that's been touched upon a fair bit sort of in the trial and also touched upon previously here. It was heard in a recorded conversation between Max and Neilma where he made these statements to her. And according to police reports, he stated that he planned to drive off Mount Nebo and that he had chosen a day to do this. Threats of suicide do, yeah, yeah, they do feature very prominently Mm. in these cases. And again, it is a way to elicit compliance and to play to a victim's sympathy and and empathetic nature. And for Um, parent control. Absolutely. Absolutely. Both the suicide threats and the brain tumor facade happened around the time that Neilma attempted to leave the relationship and cut contact with Max Seeker, which I feel Mm. is 
quite clearly uh, linked to the, the motive around that. So next segment of the parent control wheel we'll be taking off is intimidation. I maintain that this also featured in this relationship. For instance, Max telling Neilma about his experience with listening devices or bugging, his experience with hacking computers. I think Max has been described as a computer whiz. So I think that he did sort of play to that a little bit in his relationship with Neilma. In police reports, it was stated that Neilma had discussed with a few people that Max was very competent at hacking computers. And I believe this was used as a bit of an intimidation means. It was used to sort of just remind Neilma, look, this is what I'm capable of. And just to sort of remind her, I believe, that he was checking in on her. Another interesting one that's ticked off with the intimidation side of the parent control wheel is destroying of property. Interestingly, and according to Shirley's police report, Shirley Singh's police report, a rock was thrown through the sliding glass door on Kunal's 18th birthday of the home, obviously, the family shared and in which Neilma resided. This allegedly caused fairly extensive damage to a glass panel. And Neilma stated at the time that she believed that this was due to Max not being invited to the birthday party. There was an element of anger there that he was ex- that she believed he was expressing with the rock throwing. Mm. Um, and according to the parent control wheel, damage to property is considered to be an act of domestic violence and it's used to intimidate a victim. I wondered myself whether he was responsible for that rock throwing. I noticed when they reported to the police, no one nominated him as a suspect. And if that was the case, I don't know why. I I did notice that as well. I did notice that he was not, his name wasn't sort of put out there as, and not sort of formally identified. I can't help but wonder though, if this was, again, playing into what Max wanted, uh, an intimidation. Mm. Um, If they were concerned, you know, hell, we've just had a rock thrown through our window at a birthday party. What's, What's the next step? I wouldn't be surprised if that may have played into why his name wasn't nominated. And look, there's there's definitely oh, yeah. a chance it wasn't Max, certainly. You or I weren't there to see it. There's no CCTV footage of that happening. You know, it's possible that there was someone else. However, I did find it interesting that Neilma nominated him as who mm. she believed was responsible for that. Yeah. And just while we're talking about intimidation, Graham, I think it's really important to touch on the documented stalking in this case. Sifting through all the material, I have been blown away by how pronounced the stalking is in this case. It is really one of the key features of their relationship was Max's consistent stalking and monitoring or surveillance is another term you could use of Neilma. So we know Max was known to stalk Neilma and the Singh family throughout the course of their relationship. Uh, There are some documented examples of this. Uh, Absolutely. Um, There was one case in Shirley Singh's police report. She stated the family took a trip to SeaWorld on the Gold Coast. Neilma reported to her mother that she had mentioned this to Max in passing in conversation and that he later showed up at the park, sort of inserted himself into that. Neilma denied yeah. having invited him and Shirley reported being I upset about, about it. That. I, I never knew whether he, you know, followed them there or whether mm. uh, Neilma actually invited him. I, I just couldn't and work, didn't wanna, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't work out. Yeah. Again, another one that's a grey area. I mean, I guess there could you could sort of argue that you know perhaps she did invite him, and due to the family dynamics, didn't want to own that in front of her family. Yeah. Alternatively, yeah, it's well. There's another instance where, again, same police report. Allegedly, Max showed up outside the bank on a day when Neilma and Shirley were 
running some errands and happened to visit the branch. Allegedly, Max Seeker was standing right outside and waved to them. Okay. Shelley reported being very uncomfortable and unnerved by the incident. Mm. And we know that he was routinely seen to drive his car slowly past their house. Max yeah. actually, allegedly, according to the police report, self-reported following the family, but stated he did this for their protection. So he yeah. did take some of the onus. He did wear some of that and admit to it, I suppose. But definitely put his own spin on it. I don't think the Sikh, the Singh family apologies were seeking protection per se, or certainly not to the extent where they required Max Seeker to be following them in various vehicles. One other and the last one I'll touch on for the intimidation side of the power and control wheel is just Max's often knowing Neilma's whereabouts. Um, mm. Valentine's Day 2003, obviously in the it, short it months preceding. It coincidence. Yes, certainly, certainly. And I think we see actually a bit of an escalation of that, which I will mm. talk about later. When you see that escalation, it is usually preceding a homicide. Mm. Uh, but on Valentine's Day 2003, allegedly Max asked Neilma where she'd been on this day. And due to the fact they'd recently separated, Neilma actually lied to him and stated that she'd been with Amit on this day. So Max knew this was a lie, told her she'd been home all day, which she had actually, in fact, been home all day. And Neilma stated that Max told her he'd watched her house until 10pm on that date. So some fairly alarming stalking here. And especially, I think, as we draw closer to the homicide, as we draw closer to April 2003, I think we definitely see an escalation in those stalking behaviours, certainly documented by family, friends, and by Neilma herself. So moving on to the next facet of the parent control. Before we go, Max seems to tick a fair few of those boxes. He's ticking a lot of the boxes, yeah. Does the Duluth wheel talk about, it talks about parent control, does it also actually talk about physical violence? Uh, it certainly does. It? Yes, it talks about physical violence, sexual violence, parent control, coercive control. I think it's important to note that domestic violence, you can actually have a homicide, an intimate partner homicide, and a very vi uh, violent one at that in the absence of preceding violent indicators. So even if we were to suggest that Max, to the exclusionary of all other facets and factors of this case, had never displayed any violent tendencies, he could still certainly match all seven or eight of the facets of the parent control wheel and still absolutely be a, a viable suspect or a, a viable perpetrator. Okay. If I were to sit here and in a non-biased, not having any connection or of previous affiliation to this case and not certainly not going into this with any desire to you know, prove guilt or innocence one way or the other, I could find Max to comfortably fit seven of the eight yeah, facets of the parent control of, wheel. Yeah, the, the only field. one, yeah, correct. The only one he, I can't, cannot possibly make either of them fit is the use of children because we know that they don't share children. Um, so that makes that facet null and void. All right. However, the other seven do fit, yeah. Sure. Emotional abuse is something that does stand out, again, very prominently, such as the previous two. There was a consistent textbook evidence of emotional abuse in this case. A quite alarming. It was very outstanding, quite marked in the way that it was demonstrated. According to Shirley... Neilma had described Max as possessive and hard to get rid of. We can't verify whether or not that statement was made, but I would agree entirely with Neilma's sentiment had that been said. Max certainly did display traits of possessiveness, and it did appear difficult for Neilma to remove him from her life in those months preceding the triple homicide. One of the key features in this case for me, Graham, is humiliation. And this is reflected on the parent control wheel as an act of emotional abuse. And the way in which that's 
perpetrated is in those nude photographs of Neil Masing circulated in 2003. As we know and as we've discussed, these were sent by email to the Singh's friends and family, including ex-boyfriends, also allegedly received these photos. Amit being one of those, and we know that he was a prevalent love interest in Neilma's life. So it might be stated that the photos were emailed to very specific people with an agenda in mind. Mm. Um, Neilma reported to her family that she believed Max had sent the photos. This is documented in a number of police reports that she had stated uh, quite explicitly that she believed the photos had been sent by Max. One photo allegedly depicted Neilma on the toilet and she claimed that Max had taken this photo of her while she was living with him on Bribey Island um, and that she had not actually consented to him taking this photo. Rather, he'd come in while she was using the bathroom and snapped that. I believe it's quite clear that Neilma's culture was a very prevalent factor in her life. Her reputation would have been important to her. These photos ultimately humiliated her in a very, very public way and he used that platform to denigrate her reputation. So I believe that this was used to tarnish her reputation and ultimately make her, quote unquote, unsuitable wife material in her community. You you mean for anyone else? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, like I said, I believe that very specific people were added onto that, were CC'd into that email. Um, Mm. And this really feeds into the idea for me of sort of the old adage of if I can't have you, no one can. Yeah. I believe that Max was trying to use these photos to make Neilma entirely undesirable so that she would have basically no alternative but to return to the relationship with him. Um, He would set about to tarnish the reputation, scratch out other love interests per se out of the running as well as prominent members of their community, friends, family. And we do know that, again, Max was very good with computers. He self-reported having hacking abilities. So there leaves very little doubt in my mind that Max sent those emails, I feel fairly confident that that's very likely the case, especially in light of the photos that were sent. Mm. Yeah, that that one's a big one for me. The humiliation um, and Neilma allegedly spent some days in her room following the circulation of that email. Allegedly, she was very distressed, very upset, very concerned for her reputation. So that one, yeah, sticks out a lot for me. Economic abuse, next one on the wheel. I would suggest that economic abuse did feature in this case. I would suggest that it was associated with Neilma's termination of her role at Emirates under the guise that Max would help her find employment with Qantas if she returned to Australia. And we both know this didn't happen and that Neilma did attempt to return to Emirates but was unsuccessful. I think that return to Emirates is indicative for me that she likely had some will, some interest in remaining in that job. And pursuing that career. And we do know that she remained unemployed up until the time of her death. Mm. Um, I would suggest that Max may have coerced Neilma into quitting her job with Emirates. And because it, because it is evident to me that she wanted this job, we know she tried to return to it. We know that it was described at some points as a dream career, quote unquote. Um, mm. And without, without employment, Max can maintain his control and keep tabs on Neilma's whereabouts, which is not really possible with her living and working internationally. Yeah. Um, it also ensures, I suppose, that Neilma's not associating with anyone Max does not know or approve of, which would have been the case had she maintained her employment. And yes, I believe economic abuse may have been a factor. I'm not going to say it features as prominently because it doesn't in my opinion, but I do believe that this facet of the relationship and this point in the relationship could be deemed to be economic abuse um, as per the Duluth model's definition around that right we got isolation 
Another big one. This one's a key, another key player for me. Max using Neilma's phone. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. He was reported to answer on her behalf at times, read her text messages, hack into her emails. This essentially removes a victim's autonomy and her ability to have a voice. So by doing this, Max was essentially ensuring that Neilma had no safe space for discussion or social connection that was not entirely marked and controlled by him. I would also argue that the use of the explicit photographs was also an attempted isolation as this act was further isolated her from friends and family. Certainly, again, Shirley seeing reported that Neilma spent some days locked in her bedroom following this. So I feel that it's true that Neilma was largely isolated at the time of her death and her social connections were being completely destroyed and she was becoming isolated from her family, her friends and her community as a result of Max's consistent involvement. Yeah. We've got two more model, two more facets of parent control wheel, minimizing, denying, and blaming. This is a difficult one to apply, primarily because we don't have many examples of direct communication between Neilma and Max, i.e. Neilma's not here to tell us what's being said. And certainly I wouldn't tend to honor Max's version of events as gospel. But I believe there was fairly consistent gaslighting behavior in the relationship. Fushman, 2019, defines gaslighting as an attempt to manipulate someone into thinking their own perceptions of reality are mistaken. So I believe we see gaslighting behaviors in this relationship in the sense that we do see Neilma start out as a very independent, sort of a strong woman is how I would describe Neilma. And then we do sort of see her start to mold to and submit to Max. Um, Generally speaking, that's not possible in the absence of gaslighting. Lastly, the last facet of the power and control wheel is male privilege. This one does feature, I believe, in this case, I believe Max certainly maintained a relationship with Neoma where he was for, lack of a better word, calling the shots. He's telling her who she can talk to. He's removing her autonomy over decisions with employment, i.e. referring back to the incident with Emirates. He's maintaining complete control over her movements and her whereabouts. And we know he even goes so far as to monitor her phone calls, emails, and text messages. So for me, this reeks of male privilege. Max essentially believes he has the right to govern Neilma in this way, in his way. And this is, in, this is hugely indicative um, of a power play in this relationship. So we certainly don't see evidence of Neilma stalking Max or monitoring his movements or stalking his family, dictating who he can and cannot engage with socially. And that's that's hugely demonstrative of the dynamic within this relationship. Uh, and what we see is an inequality of power with Max maintaining that upper hand at all times and Neilma essentially being forced to submit to his will. Right. Uh, so Graham, I believe Max meets seven out of the possible eight factors on the parent control wheel. The only factor that's- that I've not touched on and can't identify is the use of children to control that's- and coerce. That's a lot of boxes. It is a lot of boxes. If we use the parent control wheel as a checklist, which Mm. generally speaking in the field, we do, 
Max is certainly meeting a lot of those boxes with the only box he's not meeting being, like I said, children, use of children, and only because that's not relevant in this case. But I do find it alarming that all other seven factors were very prevalent and very demonstrated throughout the relationship. You mentioned there was no evidence of physical violence or assault. Have you experienced with cases where you have these seven or eight, seven out of the eight boxes ticked, but they're not assaulting the, the partners? Is that usual or is that unusual? Criminologically speaking, we have something called the dark figure of crime, which essentially touches on crimes that remain unreported or offences that remain unreported. It's very, very, very common in domestically violent relationships for the aggrieved to be consistently and routinely subject to physical violence and not be reporting that physical violence. I don't think that was the case here. I don't think there was any evidence that he ever assaulted Neilma that I'm aware of. Certainly not that we've been made explicitly aware of. However, there are definitely cases where the aggrieved, whoever that, the aggrieved being obviously the person who's subjected to the domestic violence is not actively reporting physical assaults. That includes sexual assaults purely for fear of retaliation. I do believe there was some fear building in this case. I do believe that Nimmo was becoming quite concerned with some of Max's behavior. I think there was an element of building nervousness. And I think that had he have physically assaulted her, I'm not sure that would have been reported to police. Right. Like I said, it does feature in some cases. It's not always the way. It's certainly, it certainly can be the way. Uh, especially if you have a victim who's fearful uh, of their perpetrator. And I believe Neilma had every right to be fearful of Max given the behaviours that he was displaying, certainly his stalking behaviours. It would be very difficult for her to, for instance, go down to the police station and make a police report or to show injuries without that being identified by Max given what close tabs he was keeping on her. I think there would have been probably some harsh consequences and some retribution had she have chosen to do that. Mm. Okay. Can we talk about the forensic evidence at the crime scene? Yeah, certainly. I think it was a very disorganised crime scene. I would definitely agree with Anne McMahon's statement that she believed that the crime scene was very disorganised. I certainly agree with that. I certainly agree with that when in light of the crime scene photos, having seen all that uh, linen and the pillows, the blankets piled up next to the spa bath like that, it certainly speaks of a disorganised crime scene. In other words, unplanned. Correct. Very much so. Had we been dealing with someone who was perhaps a little bit more forensically aware or someone who was a little bit more on the ball, so to speak, you would probably see someone removing items like that from the crime scene, destroying of evidence, burning, destroying with bleach. We do know bleach was used in this case, but it certainly didn't seem to be used to sort of destroy or to tarnish the linen that was available crime scene in that spa bar, next to the spa bath. Didn't he use the bleach and putting the material in the in the spa to destroy evidence? Isn't that Yeah, correct. But we have obviously a fairly large wealth of evidence in the sense that we have all those blankets and pillows. One thing we know one of the founding ideologies of forensic science is that every contact leaves a trace. It's something that uh, it's fairly well known. It's it's, Yes, very common. Um, So I think if you sort of were, and there is obviously an an overwhelming absence of forensic evidence in this case. I 100% acknowledge that. I definitely think very highly of the power. Do you think, is it possible he was just trying to um, create the perfect crime by destroying all the evidence? 
You could certainly suggest that. I do find it odd, however, that if he was indeed trying to encapsulate the perfect crime, which I don't believe exists, that he would leave all of that bedding next to the bathtub like that. We know that stuff like that, that kind of material, that kind, those kind of items, they carry a lot of hair. They carry skin cells, carries trace, trace evidence. So to me, to leave all of that piled up next to a spa bath, next to your victims, why not remove that from the crime scene? Why not set it on fire, destroy it, you know, dump it somewhere? To leave it all piled up there like that indicates to me someone was in a hell of a rush. Not, not enough of it, it, not in a rush to the extent that they didn't have time to go downstairs and use bleach on the downstairs floor. But certainly the way that it presents to me is a bit of a frenzied cleanup. Let's just group everything in one room. That way I know where everything is. Going from room to room, grabbing pillows, grabbing, you know, fitted sheets, duvets, and putting them all in that bathroom with those victims so that everything is contained. You know, mm. I think, you know, there's a lot of anxiety, you know, you've just, you know, you've just committed a triple homicide. If we're suggesting that it is that Max is responsible or, or certainly, you know, if we sort of use Max as the perpetrator in, in this scenario. Well, well um, he, was con- he was convicted of it. Correct. He has been convicted. But I think there's certainly some controversy, certainly that I'm aware of, public forums as to whether or not he is actually guilty or innocent. A lot of people largely protest Max's innocence. But if we, of course, use him as the perpetrator, which I believe that he is, and I believe that the evidence does speak to that. He knew that Shirley and BJ were in Fiji. So I believe there was a little bit of relaxation in the sense that he knew he could go about cleaning. You know, he knew that he could go and source bleach. He knew where to find that. He knew sort of where, you know, who slept where and where this is, where that is. And that's evidenced, I believe. It certainly doesn't speak to the the bucket that was found. I really don't know how to explain that. I don't think a lot of people know how to explain that other than to say that it was bought with him, which doesn't really explain to me some facets of the case. It looks to me more like someone's that he's shown up to see Neilma. I believe that they've possibly engaged in consensual sexual relations. I would assume that may explain why Neilma was found in the state of undress that she was found in. I certainly don't agree with the theory that this was a sexually motivated offence. A sexually motivated offence would indicate that the perpetrator committed this act for the purpose of gaining sexual gratification. I don't believe that's evidenced here. And I certainly believe when it comes to profiling a a crime scene and profiling an offender, you can certainly have what we call a confirmation bias, which is where you try and make something fit. The only facet of this case that fits a sexually motivated offending was Neilma's state of undress. However, you could argue that she was in the middle of getting dressed when she was attacked or well, that she was... Just on, just on that, Shannon, one of the things that yes. concerns me is that her tracksuit pants were found in the master bedroom. Her yes. tracksuit top was found in the spa along with one yes. sock. sock. Her panties was found mm-hmm. wrapped in a blanket in the spa and mm-hmm. the other sock was yes. found in Canel's room. And to me, that I struggle with that. I I'm concerned with the location of those clothes. I I agree. I agree that it is something that is difficult to explain away. And I agree that the sort of scattering 
of items throughout the house is it's unusual, I think. I don't think that's something that you'd often see. I still believe that there still was some element of uh, a frenzied sort of running from room to room, grabbing things. Uh, it has happened. It has been evidenced in other crime scenes before where you have an offender who is trying to stage a crime scene or who is trying to engage in a, in a hurried cleanup who is essentially dropping things. Um, yeah. Bearing in mind, you know, there's a lot of adrenaline, you know, there's a sense of anxiety that yep. often accompanies something like this. You've just had a triple homicide. You live in a, a fairly well-populated neighborhood. A perpetrator would need to be mindful of that. And there probably is an element of sort of rustling around the house, grabbing at things. It's, it's difficult to say that, that that spread out or that spreading of the clothing necessarily fits that narrative. Mm. However, in my mind, it, it could be a sensical explanation as to why we have sure. something here, something there. Certainly with the panties wrapped up, her underwear wrapped up in a blanket, that would sort of speak to me as something's on the bed, everything's scooped up at once, tossed into the bathroom. That's how I conceptualise that happening. Yeah. Yeah. I feel Max Seekers has definitely got the personality to commit this crime without question. I just have um, some concerns with, with the physical evidence. You know, there's no DNA. There's people saying that he was home on the Monday night. There's just some evidence that just doesn't stack up. On the one hand, yes, he's more than capable of doing this and ticks all those boxes in the Duluth thing. So where is the DNA? Where is the physical evidence to port it? The only thing I think that might somewhat play a role here is the use of the spa. Shannon, thanks for your thoughts and comments today. have been very helpful, very enlightening, and um, appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Graham. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I thought I would take this opportunity to review the evidence for and against Max Seeker. Not every little detail, just the big ticket items presented by both the Crown and the Defence. Evidence that tends to implicate Max Seeker or exculpate him. For instance, the time Max Seeker arrived at the crime scene on the Tuesday afternoon does not prove guilt or innocence. So that, and similar points, I will not discuss. Personally, I am so conflicted by this case. I am old school and like to follow the evidence. You have just heard from Shannon. Her opinion is that Max Seeker is a classic domestic violence offender, as per her explanation of the Duluth Wheel. But like so many other things in this case, it is circumstantial. It is not proof he killed the children. From my reading of the evidence, Max Seeker certainly ticks a lot of the Duluth wheel boxes. But not all of them, and not the main one. Actual physical violence. I have not found any evidence of actual physical violence by Max Seeker toward women, and I would have expected to. A history of physical violence or abuse towards a string of partners. More than just power and control. Or was it the case he could not control Neilma and he just lost it? From my own personal experience, actual physical violence or threats of actual physical violence are an integral part of the majority of domestic violence incidents and they are absent from this case. In essence, Max Seeker went from 0 to 100, or in this case, 0 to 300, in one instance, where 0 is no physical violence and 300 is three brutal murders. I find the Sunday night one ring, the alarm not being armed, 
and the cessation of all communication by the deceased on the Monday compelling. On that same note, the cessation of communication does not necessarily mean death, but certainly means at least incapacitation. On the other side of that coin, the previously unheard of evidence of Max Seeker being home on the Sunday night I also find compelling. The time of death of the victims I find particularly perplexing. Time of death is absolutely central and crucial to this case, as it is with most circumstantial cases. In 2006, Queensland police were of the opinion the bodies had been in the spa around 12 hours. Two years later, this changed to 36 plus hours. There is no evidence of how this change occurred. There is evidence of why the change occurred. Because this was the only window available to Max Seeker. I am equally troubled by the temperature of the spa water and the room temperature of the bathroom when the first responders arrived. I am also very troubled by the fact no DNA, blood, bleach, injury or other physical evidence could be connected to Max Seeker, his clothes, cars or house. I am convinced the bleach used on the ground floor tiles was to destroy evidence of blood. There is simply no other logical explanation, and that would be to destroy DNA. And it begs the question, what caused the person to bleed that they felt compelled to destroy all evidence of it? The evidence regarding Joe Cool is very interesting but without further investigation, is just that, interesting. The evidence concerning the night caller, I believe, is also compelling. Sam DiCarlo, the defence barrister, said during his summing up to the jury that if the police did not have blinkers on, they could have built a circumstantial case around other people. DiCarlo would have been adding Joe Cool's name to the list of alternate killers. And those various matters I have mentioned here complete the total list of what I believe to be the big ticket items. And that also troubles me. I find the lack of evidence pointing to Max Seeker's guilt to be concerning. At this time, I am researching further evidence that was presented at trial. The podcast is not finished, but I will need some time to complete my review. May I suggest you follow the podcast and you will be automatically alerted when the next episode comes out. Until then, thanks for listening. Please rate and review the podcast, particularly if you listen through Apple Podcasts. It does help with the placing of the podcast. If you like it, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Appreciation to Bad Bassam for editing, mixing and mastering the episode. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You will find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks very much for listening.